Hey guys, check out my new sponsor. It's Peacehawk Coffee at peacehawk.coffee. First of all, business. You have to drink coffee in the morning, and you want it to taste good. Well, Peacehawk Coffee is the best from around the world. But then, just as important, Peacehawk Coffee donates at least a dollar of every pound sold to worthy foreign aid organizations like Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. When you buy Peacehawk Coffee, you're not only buying great coffee, you have a chance to support the economies of countries struggling against the effects of war and support private aid foundations doing life-saving work abroad. Sign up for their email list and get yourself some great coffee at peacehawk.coffee. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey guys, on the line, I've got Ted Snyder again, and of course, he's a regular contributor at antiwar.com, but I just hired him to write for the Libertarian Institute as well, and he's got his first piece is going up today, it'll be up by the time y'all hear this, The Missed Opportunities of the War in Ukraine. Welcome back to the show, Ted, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. And very happy to be uh, writing for the Libertarian Institute. So thank you very much. Great. Well, we're very happy to have you. And um, I only hope that you don't write so much that you burn yourself out and quit writing in a year. Because, <laughs> man, you write a lot. Un- unfortunately, right now, the world just keeps tossing up stories. I wish it wasn't. Right. But it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you. All right. Listen, so uh, obviously you've been writing about a ton of stuff, but especially on the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And um, you got some really great background here in uh, your first piece for the Institute today, the missed opportunities yeah. of the war in Ukraine. So you start out, I think, you know, it's quite apt. You cite Connolly's Rice and Robert Gates and their recent piece yeah. about how, boy, have we gotten Ukraine into trouble and their country's completely ruined, and the war has been a total disaster, and that's why we have to triple down now before it's too late. Yeah, I mean, they made the right observations and the wrong conclusion. Scott, it's like, this is like, what's to me, what's so, so, so sad about the war in Ukraine is that it's just, it's devastating Ukraine, one, and two is that it didn't have to happen, and, and that's sort of the tragedy. But like, yeah, I mean, Gates and, and Rice write this piece for the Washington Post, and they kind of summarize by saying that the economy's in shambles, that millions of people have fled, that infrastructure is being destroyed, and that a lot of the most valuable land in terms of in terms of like agriculture and especially industry and mineral wealth is in the hands of Russia. So it's like it's a it's a destroy. And and they don't even go into enough of the details. You know, as of a few days ago, estimates were that like a fifth of the population of Ukraine have left, like almost 18, almost eight million people. That's 19 percent of the country has left. So the country's shrinking. The The number of Ukrainian soldiers, which, you know, it's so hard to get an accurate report. But but the West keeps trying to portray this as like, 
you know, around Bakhmut, Russia's like walking over their own dead soldiers, like Ukraine's just mastering them. And the, the truth seems to be the exact opposite. You know, one um, one Ukrainian commander in Bakhmut actually said that we're about to run out of people, right? He said the exchange rate of Russians to Ukraine's is in favoring the Russians and we could run out of people. And there are estimates that, you know, Ukrainian soldiers are dying in the hundreds and hundreds of days, 300, 450 days. And, and um, German intelligence says that just in the one battle in Bakhmut, just that one battle, um, the Ukrainians are losing triple digit soldiers a day. So we're talking hundreds of deaths, millions of refugees leaving the country, infrastructure destroyed. This country's being just laid to waste. And it didn't have to happen because there were opportunities before the war to avoid it. And there have been opportunities since the war to end it. Um, and that it's just going on anyway, is, is, that's the tragedy. Yeah. Now, I want to, uh, before we get into the meat of this article here, and this is just a speculative type thing, but, you know, well, for example, in November of 21, Samuel Charup from the Rand Corporation wrote yeah. a thing in foreign policy that said, look, yeah. if, if we want to avoid this war, we're going to have to really implement Minsk too. The current Biden policy of warning Russia that you better not while offering eh, maybe some inspections for our missile launchers in Poland or this and that kind of tinkering around the edges of the controversy, that's not going to cut it. But if we really end the war in Ukraine, that will really put the burden back on Putin to justify any intervention at all. And we should really mm -hmm. do that. And they didn't do that. They spent the rest of November, December, January, February telling Putin, you better not, but refusing to really negotiate with him in good faith. Yeah. And I wonder if your interpretation is there, to paraphrase uh, Zbigniew yeah. Brzezinski about 79, that, well, we weren't necessarily trying to provoke them into invading, but, but we were knowingly increasing the probability that they would. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that that was what was going on here, that they really wanted to see Russia invade Ukraine and get bogged down in the mud there. You know, I... I hate to speculate, and I and because I, I always feel more confident going by the actual historical record of people have said and done. But if you look at that record, if you look at that evidence, it's, it's hard not to at least, you know, suspect that. You know, it's been pointed out before. Um, Nikolai Petros pointed this out that, that there's really three wars going on in here. There's there's the war within Ukraine. There's the war between Russia and Ukraine. There's the war between Russia and NATO. And it seems pretty clear that if we'd stop the war in Ukraine, you know, between the east and the west, between Donbass and Ukraine, if we'd stopped that war, that would have taken away a lot of the reasons why why Russia wanted to go into Ukraine for this war. It was it was something that could have been done. It should have been done. Um, Putin was still trying to do it. Putin was committed to the Minsk Accords right up to the very very end. Um, the states, at least officially, endorsed them. But but never pushed and in my in my piece that, that you're putting up today. I actually talk about three different historical instances where the states failed to push. They could have done it. Everybody wanted it done. It could have been done. Um, and they didn't. And they did the opposite. You know, they did the opposite of, of Minsk. So and if Angela Merkel's right, you know, if she's right, then Minsk was really a pretense to give Ukraine time for a military solution. And a military solution means that they were all along setting up this military confrontation. So when you ask me if I interpret it that way, look, I don't know if Merkel's telling the truth, but if she's telling the truth, she says that is what happened. 
Yeah, that's that's what she says. She says that we we lulled Russia into into a, a calm while we set it up to make this war an inevitability. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you if you go through and I have uh, you go through and look at <laughs> all the different times that they invoke Afghanistan as the model in yeah. December of 21 and January and February of 22, that we're going to do just like we did with the Mujahideen. And this is just mm-hmm. a few months after America's humiliating defeat and withdrawal from Afghanistan after supposedly attempting to clean up from the consequences of the last time that they did this. And Hillary Clinton famously on MSNBC said, oh, well, you know, there were some unintended consequences when we did it in Afghanistan before. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. this is after 20 years of terror war that she supported as a senator and a secretary mm-hmm. of state the whole time, you know, uh, and some unintended consequences. But anyway, it worked great. Yeah, and so Berger that's Jensky what we're doing again. Same thing. I mean, Berzhajensky has so clearly said that this was a trap, that we laid a trap for the Russians. And, and, and when he was asked later, you know, this led to, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and everything, was it worth it? Um, and, you know, Berzhajensky, I can't remember exact words, but he said, he said, of course it was worth it. You know, history right. will remember that, the, you know, the defeat of Russia is a much bigger thing than the than a temporary right. appearance on the stage. Yeah, Although, so, you know, so just, to his credit, sort of a little bit, that interview was from 96 when, you know, the worst that they'd done was, you know, attack the Kobar Towers. That might have even been before Kobar Towers, which they blamed on Iran. But, you know, there had been a couple yeah. of uh, a couple of small um, Al-Qaeda attacks. I guess there's the First World Trade Center, you know, and its potential destruction there. Mm-hmm. But he was basically they were asking him about the, the rise of the Taliban in Afghanistan. And he was going, who cares about that compared to the mm-hmm. liberation mm-hmm. of Eastern Europe? I'm not certain if they asked him again after September 11th, if he would be, you know, quite so flip about it. But still, though, yeah. you know. Because yeah, that is whether, what he said. Oh, who cares about some stirred up Muslims when yeah. we liberated Eastern Europe? And whether or not that was the, you know, the intent of, of drawing Russia into Ukraine, whether that was the intent before the war, there's certainly been signals that that's been the intent since the war. Oh, who cares the, about some stirred up Nazis? Yeah. If we, but, yeah. Yeah, and look, I mean, by the I'm, way, I mean, this is important, right? America's going to betray these Nazis at some point. They're not all Nazis, and I'm not saying they're all Nazis, but some of them are. And you're just like, not all the Mujahideen were Osama bin Laden, but some of them were. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think the, the point the point I want to make is that when you were asking whether they were, whether the, the states deliberately drew Russia in, I think that I think the point is that whether we can know that or not, since the war began, that seems to have been the point, right? Because... Because in you know in the in the talks in in Istanbul when Ukraine this is just like a month into the war and Ukraine is prepared to negotiate to end the war there you know Russia and Ukraine are both they've come to a tentative agreement and they've sort of settled the war that satisfies their interests but at this point the states and UK step in and they say no this is bigger than Ukraine that's a quote this is bigger than Ukraine this is bigger than your interests we need you to go on fighting for. U.S. interests. And at that point, Scott, um, at that point, I think U.S. has to, to some extent, own this war. They become as responsible for the war as anyone because Ukraine and Russia were ed- ready to end Ukraine and Russia's war. And the state says, no, you've got to fight on for our interests, which Austin says is weakening Russia. So at this point, I think you can say whether the states intended before the war to draw Russia in to weaken them by March of 2022. This is this is now a war with the the U.S. intent to use Ukraine to weaken Russia. Mm-hmm. 
All right, now, but if I wrote for Commentary Magazine, I would say that all of Putin's complaints are pretext. And that what he is, is he's Stalin, or at least he's, you know, Tsar Vladimir the Great who wants to recreate the old Russian Empire. That's what um, Ron DeSantis says. Yep. So, so, Scott, they can say what they want. And, you know, to, 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 I'm quoting, you know, Jeffrey Roberts right now, who's like, an, you know, and, and I said something similar a second ago to you, but quoting Jeffrey Roberts, you know, an eminent, highly respected Russian scholar. And, you know, he said, you can try to read people's minds. You can, you can set up all these reasons you think Putin did it and then look for evidence. That's all very dangerous, he said. What, what you really need to do is you need to go by the historical record of what was said and what was done. And there's absolutely nothing in the historical record to indicate any of that. There's nothing in the historical record. There's nothing in Putin's speeches to indicate that he's trying to recreate a Soviet empire or a Russian empire, that he's trying to, you know, conquer this or that. The, the, the historical evidence seems very, very clear. And, and the security guarantees, the, 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 um, the, um, the security requests that he sent to the states just before the war and to NATO's war make it very, very clear that what, what Russia kept saying is we we don't want A, Ukraine in NATO, B, we don't want NATO in Ukraine, meaning even if Ukraine doesn't join NATO, you can't load Ukraine up with NATO weapons and NATO infrastructure. So we don't want Ukraine in NATO, we don't want NATO in, in Ukraine, and we need to settle the Minsk Accords. Um, there were other things about where weapons can be and stuff, but but this is consistently those three things have been consistently what what Russia has been saying. And and it's not it's even a mistake to say Putin. It's not Putin. This it goes long back before Putin that Russian leaders were saying Ukraine can't join NATO and NATO can't be in Ukraine. Um, you know, Minsk starts later. So, of course, that's Putin. But but this is this is a long Russian thing. And, you know, people DeSantis can say what he wants. People can say what they want. Um, but there's nothing in the historical record that provides evidence for those claims. You know, even Michael McFaul, after Putin took Crimea, you know, Obama to Jeffrey Goldberg um, said, come on, he's reacting to what we just did. You know, he didn't have this isn't part of some grand plan. In fact, he wasn't even going to do it. And then he changed his That's mind right. and did it. And McFaul admitted the same thing that, yeah. you know, and McFaul, for people who aren't familiar, is the former ambassador to Russia and an absolute hawk and, and smears Putin with bad motives, no matter what, on on all the time, no matter what. Yeah. But even he just said, come on, all this stuff about he's trying to recreate former glory of this and that. That's not true. He's reacting no, to what we're doing to him. That's all. Look, it's it's nonsense. And and there's a and I, I wish I had the memory to quote dates and numbers to you. I don't. But there's a very long history of referendums in Crimea and in the Donbass that indicate that that Crimeans wanted to either have autonomy within Ukraine or to be part of Russia. There were there were um, there were referendums in the in the Donbass in, in 2014 where um Putin had to discourage them from having a referendum on joining Russia and, and to limit it to just autonomy because he didn't want them in Russia, right? The Donbass was very valuable to to Putin as being part of Ukraine. I mean, it gave him a Russian voice. It gave him it gave him a, you know, a, a sort of proxy vote in, in the Ukraine. It kept them out of NATO, it did a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and, and Putin was discouraging the Donbass 
from joining Russia. And and he had opportunity before that, you know, in, in Crimea. It, Putin was actually resisting these things. Crimea was a reaction to the coup in 2014 that he seems to have decided very quickly and, and took Crimea very easily. And an enormous majority of Crimeans wanted to rejoin Russia. Um, but also in the Donbass. This has not been a long-term plan to take the Donbass. Don't forget, in 2014, when Putin annexed Crimea. He was acting under authority by the Russian parliament to use military force, not in Crimea, but in Ukraine. And he didn't. Like he could have taken the Donbass then. It would have been easy. Militarily, he could have taken the Donbass easily. He had a Donbass population that wanted to join Russia. He had a Donbass population that was being persecuted by Ukrainian nationalists. So here you've got um, an ability to take the Donbass, a reason to take the Donbass, and a Donbass that wants you to take it. That was 2014. For eight years, he didn't take it, right? He, he didn't want to take it. This was not a long-term plan. These were, these were reactions. And, and you know, the, the, the Russian hardliners have been incredibly critical of Putin for not taking the Donbass in 2014. They say, you could have avoided all of this if when you took the Crimea, you took the Donbass. You never should have, should have trusted the Germans and the French. Putin said, I trust the Germans and the French to implement Minsk, and I really think we can resolve this um, by having the, the Donbass become, you know, autonomous with Russia, uh, sorry, autonomous within Ukraine, you know, a non-military solution. We can trust the Germans and the French. And now those hardliners are saying to Putin, you were a naive fool for trusting the Germans and the French, and now America even admits it. So... These were not long-term plans. This was this was Putin responding to what he saw as Western encroaches upon Russia by NATO spreading and by changing Ukraine, by pulling Ukraine into the Western sphere through a coup that took out a, a, a sympathetic to Russia government and put in a, a sympathetic to America government or, or to the West government. So these were responses, not long-term plans. These were these were what Putin would argue were defensive responses to the exact two kinds of encroachments that we've been begging you not to do since the end of the Cold War. And that's expand NATO to Ukraine and pull Ukraine into the Western sphere. So, you know, th this, th that's the historical record. Not that this is a long-term plan for, of Putin's a lifelong dream to, to, you know, to reinvent empire. There's no evidence for that. Oh, and you know, I got some work for you, Ted. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Tom Blanton, and I forget the co-author's name there at the National Security Archive at George Washington University, they just posted some new documents. The other day, I saw that guy, uh, Ken Rothrock, the Russia reporter, uh, post them. And they're talking about, it's 1990, and Gorbachev is talking about the very sensitive situation of the ethnic Russians being left behind in Ukraine and how mm. we need to have a comprehensive deal explaining exactly what everybody's rights and responsibilities are so that this doesn't turn into a major problem, et cetera, mm. like that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Brand new out. I hadn't had time to really dig yeah. into it, but no, I, I, I didn't it. even know about that. Yep. I haven't seen that. Yeah. Sorry. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than The Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. 
It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all got to check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casali's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasali.com slash ronpaul, and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. Casali is C-A-S-A-L-I. rickcasali.com slash ronpaul. And there's free shipping too. I don't know if you saw Bronco March teaches new piece at Acura where he did a deeper dive into the WikiLeaks and found a bunch more warnings from our friends and allies all through the time period about Ukraine and NATO expansion and the rest. So, no, I, I, I saw the headline. I haven't had a chance to read the article yet. Yeah, it's great. He's got, yeah. you know, for the likes of you and me, he's got, I don't know, 15, 20 new documents in there we love to read. So These, these warnings go back forever from, from Russian presidents from, and Soviet presidents from Gorbachev through Yeltsin to, to Putin. They go back to um, Western leaders warning the states, you know, Germany and England and France warning states. They go back to American officials warning the states about NATO expansion. And then there's a whole subspecies of warnings that, that they don't, don't talk about NATO expansion, but talk particularly about Ukraine being the red line, that even if you do expand, you can't expand, mm. you know, to Ukraine. This was these were not these were not secrets that this was this, this was provocative and and you know Putin there's a there's a great um, I can't remember if we talked about this last time but there's this moment where um, it was a it was a televised thing in Russia I haven't seen it I've read the transcript where where um, Putin turns to um, um, Sergei Lavrov and and he says um, we need to get guarantees now about NATO expansion to Ukraine. This is just before the war. And he says, and this time they need to be written down, right? Because, and then he explains later, because last time when they weren't written down, they didn't happen. And, and, and he said that very, very clearly. And then within, within days or weeks of that, they do present the U.S. with these security proposals that ask the U.S. to write down, you know, legally written down guarantees that, um, that Ukraine won't be part of NATO. And we know now from other documents and what other people have said that that the states didn't just say no to Russia. They actually told Russia that discussions of Ukraine not joining NATO are not even, they're just off the table. They're not even on the table. And Putin said at that moment that he said the states just completely ignored our, our security concerns. And he said then, big surprise now, he said then, um, and if they don't do that, we'll have to have what he called a military technical response. So, you know, he said he said, despite what other people say about the motivations were right, he was very, very clear, not just on the public record speaking, but in documents he presented to the states and NATO that that you need to stop this open door policy to Ukraine. We need to talk about this. We need a security arrangement in Europe that takes everybody's security in. The states was completely unwilling to discuss it. Putin told them, if you don't discuss it, there's going to have to be a military solution. And then there's this big surprise, including by me, who really thought Russia wasn't going to invade. You know, but that's what Putin said, right? Yeah. Um, 
So th- these were his concerns. His concerns were were Ukraine and NATO, and you know the Donbass and 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 Minsk. And those were the concerns. Yeah. Um, and 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 Minsk presented a number of opportunities to prevent the war. They could have pressured Poroshenko to sign Minsk, and they didn't. They could have supported Zelensky in his attempts to sign Minsk, and they didn't. And on literally the weeks before the war, when Putin was furiously calling Scholz and Macron and saying, Minsk will stop this. You guys need to pressure Ukraine, though. And they didn't. Three massive missed opportunities, any one of which could have been taken. Right. Zelensky was, you know, Russia thought Zelensky was going to fix things. Here's this guy who said, we're going to make peace with Russia. We're going to sign Minsk. And Russia, Russia thought there'd be changes. And um, Zelensky was willing. It was it was the states who didn't support him and do it. It was the states who made it so that Minsk couldn't be signed. So there was these three opportunities to never let this horror happening. And I think you mentioned last time that that Emmanuel Macron had promised him. No, you're right. And we are doing Minsk. I promise we are going to make them implement the thing. And then a couple of days later, it was clear that no, we're not because France ain't driving. Yeah, I, someone else must have told you that I didn't I haven't heard Macron say we promise we'll do it. I didn't I didn't actually know that line. Um, yeah, I think so, he had but, really given Putin an assurance that you have my word. We're going to do this Minsk thing. You know, we're going to implement it just like you're suggesting here. And then he just yeah. wasn't in a position to make that happen. You know, when when Zelensky was first elected, I try to remember the exact quotation. When when Zelensky was first elected, like on the eve of his election, he said, "We're certainly going to continue with this Minsk process. This is what we're going to do." And early on in his in his time that uh, in his um, early on in his election, just after his election, he met again with with um, um, France and and Germany. And he signed a document. I can I can look it up while we're talking if you want. But he signed a document again, reiterating elections in the Donbass and, and autonomy. I mean, Zelensky came into office intending to do this. Um, there was no way he could do it on his own because pressure within Ukraine was going to push him way off that path. But with American support on that path, he was going to do it. And if the states and Russia and France backed him, Zelensky was going to do what you know, they promised in Minsk and this wouldn't have happened. Um, it was, it was the, you know, this, it was the states and the Western powers who really made it so Zelensky couldn't do it. This war, this is the tragedy of this war, Scott, is that it, it, it could have been avoided. Yep. Instead, I, there's all this suffering. And in the end, in the end, and I don't want to make predictions because I hate predictions, it's probably in some way going to end exactly the way it would have ended if this had never happened. Right with some kind of agreement on, the, on autonomy in the Donbass and some kind of agreement that Ukraine won't be in NATO and some kind of security guarantees for Ukraine. <laughs> That's what could have been signed before the war ever happened without a fifth of the Ukrainian population being forced out of the country and 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 tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers killed already. Yeah. And it's not going to get better in the next couple of weeks, right? It's not going to get better. And look, I mean, when Millie, it's the, oh, and by the way, the document you're talking about there is the Steinmeier formula. Yeah, the Steinmeier, I'm getting that yeah, from your article, yeah. from, yeah. from your new article here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's good that it's good that you can remember what I, got a, I always joked at half three. No, I got it right in front of me. I was <laughs> thinking, oh man, I don't think I have that in the book. I need to plagiarize <laughs> Ted some more. Yeah, make sure it, I'm stealing your link at least, you know. <laughs> but this is this. I mean, this is Zelensky early on in his in in, in his presidency mm-hmm. saying. Um, we'll do it. Yep. 
And then, importantly, too, you link to this piece in Foreign Policy by Justin Lynch that says, you know, Zelensky flounders in bid to end Ukraine's war. Pushing a controversial peace agreement, the new president faces blowback in Kiev that he may not be able to overcome. In other words, Zelensky was elected, as you say in your article, with a lot of support from the South and East and the people Mm -hmm. who wanted the peace deal. He's a a Russian speaker. He's only just learned Ukrainian in the last couple Mm -hmm. of years. Um, I don't, I forgot exactly how far East he's from, but still, um, and so, but then in the capital city, you got right sector and C-14 crawling around. And mm-hmm. when they threaten to kill and, or just overthrow the government in Kiev, as the New York times has admitted, that is mm-hmm. not an idle threat. These men mm-hmm. have proven they have the ability to, you know, certainly overthrow the government. They've done it before. Yeah, and this was not, um, this was a small percentage of, of people in the Ukraine with an inordinate amount of power and the ability to act on that power. And, and, and that, that power got, got elevated after, you know, the coup in 2014. And, and Poroshenko already knew that the Minsk Accords would, would face huge pressure from Ukraine. I don't think, he says he knew it would never happen. He's one of those who says it was a fake because of that pressure. And that pressure intensified for Zelensky because Poroshenko was, you know, pre-2014 and and um, he didn't have to face the stronger, you know, right sector and, and the other kind of nationalist parties. And so Zelensky really had to face this and he faced enormous pressure, as we've talked about before, possibly, possibly mortal pressure. And, you know, Stephen Cohen and others have pointed out that that, you know, Zelensky was never going to be able to implement the Minsk Accords without U.S. support. Um, but he could have with U.S. support. And the U.S. knew that and Germany knew that and France knew that and they right. did nothing. Um, and, and so they 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 allowed that situation to get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, the states the states was actually at times angry with Europe for for wanting to um, support you know, Donbass autonomy, we're, and we're, we're actually pushing further even then for Ukraine to take all the territory back. So these are, these are not new things. They're things that the states have been doing that, that Putin's been watching and getting increasingly concerned about over the years. And, and finally, I think it was the, was it the Russian ambassador to Washington that, that it said at one point that, that, you know, everything we've tried has been rejected. We're getting backed and backed and backed into a corner. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is the, this is the time when Putin says to the States with these security proposals, um, we need to resolve this. And I think we can, right? I think this can be resolved by Minsk. We need some kind of security guarantees on, on, you know, Ukraine and, and NATO. And the States won't even talk about it. They knew what would happen if they didn't talk about it. Right. They had the three opportunities with Minsk to, to, to not let it happen. Then, then once the war, once the war does start, there's still opportunities to to stop it. Like on the on the eve of the war, you've got what we just talked about: Putin presenting the states with with security, you know, options that easily could have prevented the war, even if they hadn't agreed to everything to start talking. And then, um, and then you've got the we talked about before the, which to me is like this doesn't get talked about enough. This is the really the most upsetting one to me is the the Istanbul negotiations, where where you've actually got Ukraine and Russia. They actually have a tentative agreement. Right. Even the most hostile people to Russia say there was a tentative agreement. So there's a settlement within reach. And and the, the states and the UK fly in and they bust it up. And in 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 what I think is the most this is the line for me that's the most horrible line, maybe in the whole war, 
is when is when the State Department um, actually says this is a war that's in many ways bigger than Russia. It's bigger than Ukraine. So Russia and Ukraine are ready to stop the war on Russia and Ukraine's terms. But the state says that's not enough. It's bigger than your terms. We need to pursue our own foreign policy goals with Russia. And therefore, the war is going to continue. So for me, whoever you blame for the start of the war, clearly Russia bears responsibility for fighting. It's illegal to start a war. But but by April of 2022, Ukraine and Russia, this is this is key for me. By April of 2022, Russia and Ukraine have agreed to stop the war. It's the United States and the UK that says, no, you have to keep fighting for our goals. So if Russia started the war in February, it's ready to end by April. Now we're fighting a war because the state says we want a war. So after April, the U.S. bears at the very least co-responsibility for the war. So, Scott, that was the next huge chance they could have stopped the war was was in the talks in Istanbul when the two warring sides were ready to stop the war. And then the last one is just within the last few days, you know, when when Western militaries start to think that the war has reached this inflection point and inflection point means that Ukraine's reached the the apex. They've taken the land they can take Mm -hmm. and concerns amongst Western military analysts that seem to be very much bearing out right now that if the war goes on longer than this, not only will Ukraine not retake more land, but Russia will probably start taking land and so remember is that the beginning of november back a few months ago that chairman of the joint chiefs of staff milley said listen you guys did a great job taking back kursan city there let's quit while you're behind but only so far behind but there was real like he didn't say this but i sure inferred that he meant to say you guys are losing mariupol never mind just um, you know, the Donbass, you're losing that area of Zaporozhia, um, Oblast too, in that, uh, in that so-called land bridge between Donetsk and Crimea. But hey, you know what? <laughs> you could have not listened to us and signed the peace deal a year ago, <laughs> right? But uh, and, so, but, and, and, and he's presumably speaking for the rest of the chiefs there. And then you got Antony Blinken puts a story in the New York times saying that, no, he disagrees with the military guys. They don't know what they're talking about. He thinks they should push their luck further until they're in a better position of strength, which is, I guess what this tanks and Crimea talk is about. Well, and yet well, how transparent is it when they admit that, well, look, we're just doing this for the public relations, so it looks like we're in a stronger position so we can negotiate. You give away your whole advantage when you put that in the newspaper, you know? Yeah, and Scott, look, look Biden Biden wrote this in the New York Times, too, in his op-ed piece in the New York Times, and they've said consistently since then that our goal is to put Ukraine in the strongest position possible on the battlefield, to put them in the strongest position possible at the negotiating table. So... If in November we've reached an inflection point where Ukraine is now at the strongest point on the battlefield, then if you're telling the truth, now's the time for negotiations, right? But they pressure them not to go to negotiations. They're, they're at a fork in the road now. Ukraine's gone as far as they can with the weapons they've got. So negotiate or give them more bigger weapons. And they chose to give them bigger weapons. And for me, that's the sixth missed opportunity. There was this moment at this inflection point 
where you've put Ukraine at the strongest position on the battlefield, they're now at the strongest position on the negotiating table, negotiate. And they missed that opportunity and they chose to escalate again. Um, and that's the sixth lost opportunity. By the way, most of those weapons aren't going to get there in time to have any relevance in this war. So pushing them past that inflection point is going to mean what? It's going to mean that thousands more Ukrainian soldiers are going to get killed in Bakhmut over the next few days. From everything I read, Russia will probably take Bakhmut in the next few days. That means that leads to the possibility, I'm not a military analyst, but that leads to the possibility of tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops being surrounded by Russian troops. It means that the Ukraine can no longer supply their troops in that part of the Donbass. It gives Russia the chance to take more of the Donbass. It's the, for Ukraine, this is a disaster while America pursues their policies against Russia. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the sixth and the, and the last sort of vile missed opportunity so far was that we really were at that moment the state said it's time to negotiate. And instead of negotiating, they just pushed the war on more. Yep. Well, you know, I think there's a real question to this day about what the radical right would do to, to Zelensky if he did try to make a deal here. You know, they said before that they'd kill him. Um, I don't know why they would change their mind about that. I mean, if if the Ukrainian military as a major organized force is smashed and the Russians just take what they want and Zelensky signs on the bottom line, these four oblasts belong to you now, the Nazis aren't going to accept that. They may or may not kill him, but they're going to keep waging an insurgency or, of some kind or another against the Russians. Yeah. And then... At that point, there's not going to be a Ukrainian military to rein them in. Not that they ever were able to before, I guess. And I don't, I don't know enough about this to speak much about it. But, you know, what is Zelensky's out now? If if he continues to fight, more and more Ukraine is going to kill. The infrastructure is going to get more and more devastated. The worst part of the war is still to come for Ukraine, right? So if, if, he, if he keeps going, um, Ukraine is devastated at some point. Does that affect his popularity? If he doesn't and he signs the agreement, as you said, he faces the same force from the right as before, but worse now, because now you've got the rest of the country saying, what? <laughs> you put us through all of this just to do what you were going to do then. Um, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to know how Zelensky gets out of the position that the Americans have helped to put him in. Um, yeah, It's scary. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a bug assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. 
All right, so I wanted to go back to a point that you made before about Putin's security proposals and all of that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I just find this entertaining in a way, I guess, is, um, and this is because I guess maybe I'm very middle-aged right now and I don't want to admit it, so I keep insisting to myself that 1997 was just yesterday. Uh, but according to our media, it's ancient history. Uh, 1997 was the year after 1897. And nothing that happened then matters or could possibly matter. Um, and and that and Putin obviously is a dishonest guy or a crazy guy that he would even bring up an agreement from 1997 at all. Who could imagine that an agreement from 1997 would still be valid in any way? Don't you know America's word doesn't last that long? You Which know? agreement do you mean? And it's the Founding Act. It's the the oh. um, the Founding Act for the NATO Russia Council. And the promise that America would not move military forces into Eastern Europe. And they got it in writing, but it's just an assurance, not an agreement and not a treaty and a thing. And I just found this great quote. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I just found this great quote from uh, Bill Clinton here. And Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton for you. Mm -hmm. No one will be surprised to hear this Mm -hmm. from him. Mm -hmm. He says, What the Russians get out of this great deal we're offering them is a chance to sit in the same room with NATO and join us whenever we all agree to do something. But they don't have any ability to stop us from doing something that they don't agree with. They can register their disapproval by walking out of the room. And for their second big benefit, they get our promise that we're not going to put our military stuff into their former allies who are now going to be our allies Unless we happen to wake up one morning and decide to change our mind. Yeah, and decide to change our mind. Um, if you look back at the founding acts, God, and again, I wish I had the memory to just bring the words up to my brain now. I don't. But but if you look at the, I've written about this on Antwerp before, so you can Google it. But if you if you look at the founding act, it, it was a bluff from the beginning. And the language was so slippery um, that, that it, you know, it implied promises to Russia that were not promises to Russia. And, and the, the sophistry of the U S position is, 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 you know, brought into highlight when you look at the founding act, which said, if I remember, I think you just said this, that the U S can't have any, um, permanently, sorry, NATO can't have any permanently stationed, um, you know, military in, in, um, former Soviet Union territory. And then a few months ago, Biden announces that they're building a permanent military base in Poland. And Putin says, what? <laughs> Founding Act, no permanent military. And and what the state says, and this isn't Clinton, although it's such Clinton-like language, right? What the state says is that this is not a permanent military base because the soldiers will be cycling through it. They won't be permanent. As if that's not the case of every military base in the history of the world, right? That, that, that what makes it the base is permanent, but it doesn't count because the soldiers aren't there eternally. We we cycle them. This is just total sophistry. And, you know, Putin's a lawyer. Um, Putin, Putin knows the law. He likes legalese. And, and you know, when you take the, the, the broken verbal promises of NATO expansion after the Cold War, and then you get the twisting out of the written promises of things like the Founding Act, this is why Putin said this time, it doesn't matter if you tell us Ukraine's not in the near future. It doesn't matter what you tell us, right? This time we needed in legally binding language. And they weren't going to settle for anything less this time because they've been burned. 
um, by taking American promises. They've been burned. And that's why these security proposals that that Putin brought was this time he said, these have to be in writing. We, we need to put in writing that Ukraine won't be a member of NATO, that we won't have a, a hostile alliance right on our border. And don't tell me it's not a hostile alliance, right? What does it mean when you bring every single country into a military alliance except us and then butt it right up to our border, right? How how, how could you interpret that as anything but hostile? Um, and so we need written security guarantees. And when you tell us it's not even on the table, then there'll be a military solution. And then don't act surprised when there's a military solution. And I'm not saying it's right to have a military solution. I'm a pacifist. I don't think it's right to ever have a military solution. But don't act surprised. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important, too, that this is not just coming from the Ron Paulians and the Ted Snyders and the the critics of the world. I and mean, we have, well, I'm writing a book about this right now. And I got, there's a thousand quotes from all the most powerful and well-informed and influential people in the foreign policy blob saying that exact same thing. Boy, we're just moving the, the dividing current, line. And, Scott, including the current head of the CIA, right. who's been the main negotiator for the U.S. And they'll say things like, war. look, NATO is a defensive alliance. Never mind those wars that we started and stuff, but we we swear we're really not going to attack Russia. Are you crazy? We're not going to do that. We We really are just consolidating our position in Eastern Europe so that Russia doesn't invade Eastern Europe. As long as they don't invade, then we won't have a problem. But, however, still, we also have to recognize how that looks to the Russians. It still looks pretty aggressive to them. And so we need to take those concerns, right? These are the people who are actually implementing the policy are saying, yeah, you know, I'd freak out if I was them too. So we better do a little bit of eggshells and and try to negotiate in a way and and make them feel better about what we're doing, not just kick sand in their face and call them bad words and insult them and cause worse problems. And it isn't isn't just how it looks to Russia. Days after NATO made its first expansion into, I forget now if it was Soviet territory or Baltic territory, I forget which one they made. Like the most Poland, Hungary, and Romania was the first. Yeah, one but the, the, yeah. yeah, that was the first. But I mean, that, like days after they made sort of their most provocative encroachment into former Soviet territory, might have been the Baltics, I can't remember, they bombed Kosovo. Yeah, no, it was, um, the, it was right at, it was the day, it was yeah. like three weeks after those first three nations were brought in. In yeah. 99, so, in the spring of 99. And so, you know, Yeltsin looks out and he says, you told me this was defensive. You moved closer to our borders. Then you bombed one of our allies. I, I believe that was the moment, too. I have to check my facts, so maybe don't put me on the radio. <laughs> I think that was the moment that Yeltsin first reminded the states that you're dealing with a nuclear power. You know who we are. Be careful. You know, that that, that was then. So they're doing and then And then you get Libya. Right. So so where where, um, you know, NATO goes completely around the Security Council again. And so, you know, Russia's saying, like, <laughs> if you were a defensive alliance, first of all, the Warsaw Pact is gone. Defending from whom? Second of all, why are you swallowing up every single country but excluding us if it's defensive? Third of all, why are you bombing Kosovo and Libya? That's not defensive. Neither Libya nor, you know, anyone in Yugoslavia was attacking or bombing the United States. Um, That's not defensive. So and and then they see them moving closer and closer. They're coming into Ukraine. Ukraine's being 
flooded first with defensive weapons very early and then flooded with, um, you know, lethal weapons, um, flooded with lethal weapons, um, flooded with infrastructure, flooded with trainers, um, training them to use what on whom Russia's saying, right? So they're scared. Right. Absolutely. All right. Listen, um, I still got a little bit of time. If you do, you want to talk about your new piece at antiwar.com today too? Um, sure. Fact checking Zelensky on non-alignment. What do you mean by that? So, um, Zelensky made, um, a speech the other day. I think he's talking to the Ukrainian parliament's annual message. And he's, he made this comment where he said that Ukraine has helped the West find itself again that it's united the European Union and helped Europe and most of the world, I'm quoting this part, helped Europe and most of the world feel that being neutral is, pardon me, immoral. Um, so Zelensky's he's claiming that it, it's, it's showing the world again that being neutral or non-aligned is, is not a moral position. And, you know, Scott, I think there's some truth to Zelensky's first claim that it helped find the West again, that with some really important outliers, it has to some extent united Europe and NATO, but I think it's not true that it's shown the world that it's immoral to be non-aligned. I think what we've seen in the last year is in fact a kind of um, strengthening of the non-alignment movement that that um, huge organizations like BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that, that represent 40 to 45 percent of the world um, have neither sanctioned nor condemned Russia, have continued to trade with Russia, um, have continued to push for not a unipolar world, but a multipolar world. You've had several countries in Africa and the Middle East and Latin America who have stayed out of the sanctions and remain neutral, either because they see this as just another, you know, Western and European war that doesn't affect them or that it hurts them or that they remember um, what the states has done to them and don't believe American language about non-intervention and, and respecting territorial borders. So in Russia, they call this the, the, they call this the global majority now, where, where more than half the world has decided to stay non-aligned. And that doesn't mean they're siding with Russia, right? It means that they're not siding with Russia or the states and looking out for their own interests. And you get countries like Saudi Arabia who have this kind of mantra now, which is, yes, we're strategic partners of the United States, but we're strategic partners of China too, or we're partners of Russia too. And we need to look out for our own interests and not getting drawn into this. And and and, and I think you're seeing actually a, a massive growth of the non-aligned movement. And so I think although Zelensky's talking about non-alignment becoming immoral now, um, I think in some ways this war has given an, an impetus to the non-aligned movement. Um, there's all kinds of countries now applying for membership to, to BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Oh, is that so? Yeah, there's tons of countries. I mean, uh, uh, Iran just, just got into the SCO and... Um, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and all kinds of countries applying for membership for these bodies. And and these these bodies are not, again, I don't want to make this sound like they're like supporting the war or pro-Russian. These are bodies that say that we're not against anyone, um, but we're, we're uh, aligning together to enforce a multipolar world where 
it balances U.S. leadership. Where it's not one country telling what to do. It's a it's a way of preserving neutrality or non-alignment. And and so I think that um, I think that what Zelensky said about the second part is 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 not true. I think that this war has actually hurt the states in that way. That that if if the American goal was to this is how we started the show was to weaken Russia and to protect their own spheres of influence and to to remain the global, you know, hegemon in, in this unipolar world. I think it's done the opposite. It's pushed Russia closer to China. It's pushed Russia closer to India. It's pushed Russia closer to Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Venezuela and South Africa and much of Africa. South Africa just conducted massive military drills with, you know, China and Russia. Hmm. Um, so I, I think in this attempt to preserve hegemony and preserve a unipolar world, I think it's having the opposite effect. It's actually strengthening the multipolar world. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in articles is how many different movements there are underway in the world right now to escape the U.S. dollar as, as a currency that you've got. You've got um, Saudi Arabia saying they're prepared to start trading oil outside the U.S. dollar now. That's serious. Um, you've got you've got um, BRICS and the SCO talking about trading their own currencies. You've got Latin America talking about developing a, um, a a unified currency. You've got you know all the world, and they're partly scared. You know what what these countries just saw is that the U.S. has the power because they control the dollar to to completely disable or to attempt to disable your economy. They froze up Russian funds. They sanctioned Russia. I mean, these countries are very aware that that this can happen to them too. Um, and and they're looking they're looking for ways to trade outside of the dollar, and that's this is this is not making neutrality immoral, right? This is actually it's been a, it's been an, I think an incredible boost to neutrality. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in Europe, it's gone the other way, of course, where now we have Sweden and Finland joining NATO, and you know, increased troop numbers. Any argument that man, we should disband NATO and get the hell out of there. Get rid of the organization. Just turn it into simply a treaty. That you know, call us if you need us, but we're going home for now, kind of thing. Well, Anything Scott, like that. that. That's off the table for years and years I and years in the future. Now, you know, you're right. But I think even within Europe, you've got you've got France and Germany, for example, insisting that we need to resolve this war by taking seriously Russia concerns about Ukraine and NATO by 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 looking at 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 security arrangements that. This is what Macron and Schultz was saying, like word for word, that we need to have security arrangements that take into account, you know, Russians' core needs. So, so even even within Europe, although there's a sort of tightening of Europe, um, there's still like the two biggest countries in the EU who are outliers with the states and saying, no, we need to start talking to Russia now about taking their security concerns seriously. And I think it was Macron that said, you know, that specified Ukraine and NATO. And, you know, Schultz was saying we need to look at ways very quickly to reintegrate Russia into the community after the war. So even even in Europe on the sort of NATO agreement and superficial agreement, there 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 are divides here, right, that 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 there are countries that are going well beyond what the U.S. wants to negotiate with Russia. Yeah. Well, you know, right after the war started, Doug McGregor uh and unfortunately, a prediction that didn't come true said that, well, the Germans are going to step in here and demand an end to this before too long, just like they had done with Minsk 1 and 2. 
mm-hmm. that come on man we're, we can't it's fine from over here in north america you can you know it's like carlin said playing with toys in the sand or whatever this is all abstract fun from here but for germany this war in ukraine carries real consequences and for decades and i mean they're First of all, with refugees and all of that, but their relationship with Russia going forward here and all of these things, it's they have so much more at stake. But I yep. guess that, you know, their country, their government is just so under the thumb of the United States. They just don't have the independence. Well, Scott, this you has know. always been the problem, because if you go back to 2008 at the famous, you know, NATO Bucharest summit in 2008, yeah. when George Bush comes in and says, let's bring Ukraine into NATO all the way back then, it was Germany and France that said no. Um, and the only reason why Ukraine didn't get, you know, NATO ascension in 2008 is because through a really weird and mis- misunderstood negotiation, they, they managed to water down the language to a promise that they joined or not. So Russia, so Germany and France have always been kind of outliers in this and 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 they still are and this is why Macron is still saying to Bush he didn't really make it into the American media after Macron met with Bush the American media was about how they all agreed and then just before he leaves the country he gives an interview on French TV and and he says straight up we we need to start negotiating taking you know Russia's security concerns seriously, and he called them legitimate I can't remember exact wording but he called them you know legitimate security concerns yeah. and then again, so they couldn't stop Bush from announcing that, well, we're going to bring them in someday. We're not giving them an action plan, but we're promising one soon. You and, know, there's reports you know. that that um, Condoleezza Rice and um, some of the Eastern European members of NATO, um, the, some of these people kind of huddled and talked about what are we going to do about, um, you know, Bush saying we want to bring Ukraine into NATO now. And uh, there's reports that that. Germany and France actually wanted something much stronger, that they really wanted to not do it, and that almost somehow in some kind of accidental way that Angela Merkel never figured out, this kind of line came out about the promise. And and, and at that point, one one official, I forget if it was a European or American official, again, my memory's gone, um, it w- t- turned to somebody and said, do we just put Ukraine in NATO? <laughs> right? Um, I think Germany and France wanted a much weaker statement in 2008, and and it's not entirely even clear. Um, I've heard language be blamed. I've heard that they didn't have their interpreters there, and they were all trying to mumble in in like half Russian. But I don't know. Um, but Germany and France didn't want Ukraine and NATO in 2008, and and they're still expressing that concern now that we need to need to negotiate. Remember, the states are saying that this is not on the table. We don't negotiate Ukraine and NATO. And and Macron saying no, we have to exactly negotiate Russian security concerns and talk about Ukraine and NATO. Yeah. All right, man. Well, I got to read up on Fast and Furious and the CIA in Mexico <laughs> for my next interview. But this is always uh, fun. This was great. fun. This always is fun. I love talking to you and reading your great stuff, Ted. Thanks, Scott. It was great talking to you. All right, you guys, that is Ted Snyder, of course, regular contributor at antiwar.com, and now also at the Libertarian Institute as well. Check out his brand new one. His first one at the Institute is called The Missed Opportunities of the War in Ukraine. And at antiwar.com today, fact-checking Zelensky on non-alignment. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A.
APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.